welcome to Discover Pediatric Surgery. My name is Andrew Grieve and I look forward to being your host today on this exciting episode. I'd like to welcome back Mark Davenport, who's the professor and lead surgeon at King's College Hospital in London, the United Kingdom. Uh, he's one of the three hepatobiliary referral centers in the UK. Uh, so he obviously sees a massive amount of hepatobiliary work. And today we're fortunate to have him talking to us about colidocal malformations. Welcome, Mark. Thank you for the invite. Uh, Mark, people have been recently describing colidocal malformations as presenting sort of in three different patterns. The one is obviously an antenatal diagnosis. Um, and then in infancy, kids that are jaundiced and may have cholangitis. And then obviously later, kids that develop uh, jaundice associated with things like pancreatitis and cholangitis. Um, do you think that colidocal malformations are congenital in all cases, or do you think there's an acquired variant of colidocal malformations? That's a very interesting question. Very difficult to really answer it uh, appropriately. Uh, of the three types of presentations that you mention, uh, the antenatal ones, clearly, they're all congenital by definition. Um, and we've learned a lot about them um, by them being antenatally detected. So we know uh, that you can uh, uh, you can pick up on the maternal ultrasound them at around about 18 to 20 weeks gestation. And they don't change much. They don't change much. So they're not really evolving from there. They're already uh, cysts uh, that you can pick up on, on the ultrasound. Mm. Uh, and at the time of birth, they're still there. We then recommend a, a repeated postnatal ultrasound uh, and ensure that clinically they're not jaundiced. Uh, and then you can judge as to when to, to, to do time the operation itself. They are all cystic malformations. Okay. So they're all cystic malformations. We have not yet got a fusiform malformation uh, that is presented antenatally. Now, um, that uh, that may simply be due to the fact of size, because the fusiform malformations tend to be smaller, right. have a reduced diameter of the CBD element to their cyst, to their malformation. Uh, but we don't think so. So if there are any. Um, ones that are evolving, changing, postnatally acquired, then it's likely to be in the fusiform category, we think. So you can perhaps, if it looks like a cystic one, that's probably been there at the time of birth. All right. Um, Mark, can you, maybe you can just briefly tell us what the different types are. You're speaking about cystic and okay. fusiform. What are the, I mean, Tadani, I think, originally described the classification. What, what are you using at the moment for your classification? We uh, the Tadani classification is in is in widespread use across the globe, but Tadani was working in a different era. Uh, he uh, most of the big uh, series uh, of colidocal malformations uh, were sort of reported in the nineteen sixties and seventies, early eighties by Japanese uh, authors, of which he was one of them. Um, and they all did cholangiograms, and he was very intense at trying to classify each particular uh, picture uh, and fitting it into a classification. So, for instance, uh, type 1, which is defined as dilatation within the extrahepatic part of the biliary tree, he says there's three types, A, B, and C. But actually, when you look at the uh, two of them, they look the same, actually. And you, 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 they're only distinguished, in fact, by the position of the gallbladder. Uh, 
okay. which didn't seem to matter. Who cares? Mm. So we looked at our own series and did recognise this fundal, fundamental discrimination uh, between a fusiform, spindle-shaped, cylindrical, the other words used, where it's difficult to see where it starts, difficult to really see where it finishes, and the cystic ones, which is very easy, there's a, an abrupt change in calibre. And that did seem to have some kind of um, fundamental difference as well. They probably have a different mechanism um, of, uh, of etiology. So it, in our classification, we've only got two type 1s. And we, we, so, we sort of uh, used this, the, uh, uh, the sub-type uh, 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 1C, C standing for cystic, and 1F standing for fusiform. Okay. Um, and as time has gone along, we've done a, a number of different uh, clinical observational studies showing that there are fundamental differences between these two basic variants of the type 1. Right. And then, just for completeness sake, uh, type 2, 3, okay. 4 and 5? So, type 2 um, is the, uh, the diverticulum. So it's an offshoot of the common bile duct. Extraordinarily rare. I'm not even sure I've seen one. Okay. Type 3 uh, is uh, what's called a coridocosil. So that's a discrete dilatation within the wall of the duodenum and coridocosil analogous to urethrocele. Um, again, very rare in children. Very mm. rare in children. Type 4, we believe, is a more advanced version of the type um, 1. So you get, in addition to the extrahepatic dilatation, intrahepatic bile duct dilatation. Okay. So that's type 4. Tadani, incidentally, recognises two different types of type 4, where actually uh, there's, I think it's 1B, uh, 4B, uh, that has a double dilatation in the extrahepatic palatability. Again, extraordinarily rare, so why do we need to incorporate it into a classification? Type 5... I guess is where there's a bit more controversy. Type 5 is defined as uh, intrahepatic dilatation alone, implying a normal extrahepatic bile duct. Mm -hmm. Now, immediately, you will say, ah, that's Corolli's disease. Are you saying that? I was going to ask you the difference between <laughs> Corolli's disease and Corolli's syndrome. Okay, well, there is a difference, there is a difference, but we'll, we'll, we'll let that pass. But Corolli's is... Is, is clearly a different entity uh, than all of the corridocal malformations I've been talking about, which are simple changes in the, the structure of the biliary tract. Carolis disease syndrome um, is a fundamental genetic disorder, and we even know the genes for it. And they've almost always got renal involvement in some respects, so they've got a degree of renal fibrosis or renal cystic change. Um, when you look at the livers of Corollis, they have got very early onset fibrosis as an intrinsic part of their disease. The dilatation itself is, is often not that big. It's multiple, affects right and left lobes, uh, and it's always within the liver. So they've always got a normal extrapatic part of the biliary tree as well. Uh, so it, that's different. Okay. There are uh, examples where they, you truly have an isolated intrahepatic cyst, um, and that's probably the, that's probably better appreciated as part of our fundamental classification, but Corollis is different. Okay, okay. 
Um, we spoke a little bit about biliary atresia earlier, but what's the difference really between a cardiodocal cyst and a cystic biliary, biliary atresia? atresia? Yeah, that's a, that's a that's a very important clinical distinction to make. So the scenario is uh, you're born. Uh, the ultrasound shows that there is a cyst related to the biliary tree, uh, and you're jaundiced, and specifically you've got conjugated jaundice. So, is it a cystic biliary atresia or is it a cholido- an obstructed cholidocal cyst? Mm. Um, to be honest, it doesn't matter because the operation is a laparotomy, an expedited laparotomy. Um, the only real um, uh, difficult decision, difficult, not sense, is if they actually you've seen this picture, but they're not jaundiced. Okay. They're not jaundiced, so they cannot be cystic atresias, and you can afford to wait before you operate on that. Now, the difference on the table is uh, in the cholangiogram. So you do a cholangiogram, and in the cystic biliary atresias, they've always got very abnormal intrahepatic bile ducts. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not the normal, smooth, tree-like appearance of an intrahepatic bile duct for a cholelocal malformation. Okay. Um, you, uh, so often there is, uh, again, an atrophic gallbladder, which, again, you really shouldn't see for a cholelocal malformation. Yeah. Uh, so they, they do appear different on table. All right. So what's your, I mean, you've mentioned ultrasounds, but what's your inve- investigation of choice for cholidocal malformations? We, uh, ultrasound is the key. Um, uh, what you're looking for is in addition to the cyst or the dilatation, um, is there any evidence of intrapatic dilatation to accompany it? Uh, you're uh, looking to try and preoperatively have some idea of the anatomy and to the best a to that is the MRCP. So we do an MR scan. Okay. Now, the younger they are, the more difficult that actually technically is. You might have to do it under a general anaesthetic. But, but even that can stretch the limits of technological sophistication of the scanner. Hmm. But MRCP uh, gives us a great anatomical picture of, of what it looks like. So if you had a patient that had an antenatal diagnosis of a cystic lesion at the porta hepatis and they were seen to be jaundiced... Conjugated jaundice when they're or uh, conjugated hyperbilirubinemia. You know, you obviously you want to go and explore those kids. How long would you wait before going to explore them? Would you explore them in the first week, the second week? Uh, no if if necessary, yes. As I say, I don't think there's once you've made the decision that these babies do need an operation. As I say, we we clearly know that those with cystic bilirubinemia you have a marked relationship uh, with age at which you do it. So if you leave it then they will not do well. Mm. Whether that's the same for the obstructed cholidocals, I'm less secure about, but you don't know that at the time. All right. Uh, I mean, some people have said that there's an increased incidence of fibrosis even with cholidocal malformations the longer that they are there untreated. Is that your experience? Um, my, my preference for those to, uh, to treat them, the, the, the typical sort of elective period would be about two to three months. Okay. So we've never found any significant fibrosis in those. And again, the, the caveat of that is they can't be jaundiced. I'm not, if they were jaundiced, I would not wait two to three months. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. They, they have to have clear evidence that the bile is going through. Right, right. Um, so is there any uh, detriment in delaying surgery even longer for asymptomatic cholidocal malformations? I, I, I don't think so. As I say, if, you, if you've got the tools, if you're happy 
and confident to dissect out the biliary tree of three-month-old babies, then you should just simply get on with it. But is there any, any harm in waiting longer? Well, again, then, then you're brushing with danger. <laughs> and uh, you, you don't know. So we wouldn't test this hypothesis to destruction. Okay. All we right. don't know when the fibrotic process does switch off. We know that these are ducts under pressure, so the, the, the stimulus will be there. But I think by the time you can see visible evidence, ultrasound evidence, uh, it's too late. Right, right. What's your procedure of choice for a type 1 cardiodocom malformation? Um, so our, the standard treatment is clearly excision and biliary reconstruction. We uh, invariably do an open procedure as opposed to a laparoscopic procedure. Um, the um, uh, way of doing it is, is fairly stereotypical, to be honest. The principles are easy to enunciate. I mean, this, it requires clear dissection um, of both top and bottom. Now, we haven't mentioned, actually, the, the role of the common channel, um, and perhaps it's, it's, it's pertinent to do so now. But a, a common channel, 90% uh, plus corridocal malformation should have common channel uh, in the types that we're talking about, which is the type 1, type 4. And if they haven't got a common channel, you, you actually doubt that they are a cardiolocal malformation. You can have uh, biliary stenosis. Mm. So we've seen that, again, uh, in the post-preterm infant population. Probably ischemia is, is related to that. Developing a, developing a dilated bile duct, but not having a common channel. Right. Um, and uh, that, that, that's probably an acquired disease. That's probably an acquired disease. The common channel itself allows free intermixing of bile and pancreatic juices. Okay. Now, that explains uh, why some of them will present later on with pancreatitis. Right. So you've got bile getting into the, the pancreatic duct system, triggering the inflammatory process. And these are typically kids who are about uh, three, four, five years of age. Mm. Um, now, historically, when we looked at our early part of the series, these were actually kids who had had undiagnosed abdominal pain for years. Pediatricians had been so-called investigating them, not finding a great deal. And then suddenly someone during an episode of abdominal pain did an amylase level and said, well, we don't see pancreatitis in children. Well, it can't be right. Yeah. But it, it is right. They do get pancreatitis. Um, and that's uh, the other side, the other flip side of that sort of rela uh, relationship between free intermixing is that pancreatic juice can also get into the biliary tract. Okay. And that, as you know, has been the, that's one of the hypotheses of etiology. It's called the Babbitt hypothesis. The idea is that you get um, enzymatic destruction of the mucosa of the bile duct because of this pancreatic juice. And then having destroyed your mucosa, you then weaken the wall and the weakened wall dilates. That's, that's the Babbitt hypothesis. We don't believe it. But nonetheless, it, it's out there in the textbooks. Probably the textbooks you read, Andrew. <laughs> but it's important to recognise what's happening on the table with this common channel. The last thing you really want to do when you're dissecting in the head of the pancreas is to damage the pancreatic duct. The only thing worse uh, than a damaged pancreatic duct is not recognising that you've damaged it because it will then let you know probably from day three, day four of life, when it starts leaking. Yeah. 
So that's that's a that's a no win situation. So how do you avoid damaging the distal duct? Do you do an on table calendrogram? We all always do a calendrogram. So you may have the best MRCP image in the world, but it, very typically it does not show the common channel. That's 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 usually just too small for it. Um, so the the uh, calendrogram has a fighting chance of showing it, and then you you sort of know the length of it. Uh, you sort of know. The relationship, if it's a cyst, when the cyst uh, uh, comes to its stop, how long that distal CBD is that you've got to play with. Right. The fusiforms, as I say, you, you often cannot tell when they end. They just go into the common channel. So you may have to decide early on that actually I'm going to leave it a bit to avoid getting into it. Yeah. Um, when we're down there, um, in the older children, we can actually put a scope down. So do you open all the cysts when you dust yeah, them out? Yeah, so we, we, we typically we would, uh, we would transect at the level of the common hepatic duct. And then you, you mobilise the, uh, uh, the common bile duct element uh, down into the head of the pancreas. That's usually the, the last part of the dissection. Right. So you, you're focusing, you can see it both anteriorly and posteriorly. Um, and again, when, you, when you're trying to make a decision... You want to make sure that the common channel is cleared of any kind of debris, particularly in those that have presented with pancreatitis, because you have to clear that. If you don't clear it of obstruction, they will get recurrent pancreatitis still. Yeah. Uh, so we would, might put a, a UVC, an umbilical venous catheter through, flush it through, uh, lacrimal duct probes to make sure there's no obstruction. The bigger and older child, as I say, we can pass a telescope, a cholangioscope through, and you can see if there's any obstruction, mm-hmm. if there's any debris left. Uh, and then you can do a safe closure of, of the distal end. Uh, and then you can revert back to the two. You can forget about that bit and then concentrate on the uh, on your anastomosis. Have you ever had to resort to Lily's procedure? Sorry, the what procedure? <laughs> the Lily procedure. The Lily procedure. Yeah. Yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> what is it? <laughs> So John Lilly described a technique, because uh, what you do want to do after you finish the operation is say, I have taken out all of this mucosa. Mm. It doesn't really matter if you leave the wall in. The wall's inert. It doesn't really matter at all. So if you're dissecting out and, and it's clearly becoming a bloodbath, uh, you've got recurrent inflammation, they're usually teenagers by this stage. Um, you're left with a no-win situation, but you've got to finish it. And uh, uh, the Lilly procedure is to actually dissect within the wall, leaving the back, typically, um, and but resecting the mucosa. Uh, and that's a, that's a perfectly reasonable thing to do. <laughs> Have you ever done liver resections with type 4 cysts? Or... Okay, so again, controversial area. You're picking up on all the controversial areas <laughs> in hepatobiliary surgery at the moment. Uh, I've, got, I've got the experts in the room. Uh, that's true. That's, I can't, can't deny that. can't deny that. So the, the, um, the controversial area is what to do with the dilated intrahepatic ducts in a type 4. Now, if, if I was sitting here as an adult practitioner, they would have no hesitation in saying, well, because they're usually on the left side, usually on the left. Oh, you have to do a left hemihepatectomy in order to get rid of your post-operative problems in addition to the bile duct reconstruction. 
Um, we've shown convincingly, actually, you don't. Not in children. I mean, that's the caveat. Okay. Um, and uh, so when we're faced with a dilated intrapanic biliary tree, again, we would promote the use of intraoperative cholangiography and cholangioscopy, sticking the scope in, getting into all those segmental ducts, if there are stones, washing them out, if there are uh, uh, stenotic areas to dilate the stenosis within the liver. What you want to do is a, is a sort of one-stop shop, sorting out all of these potential problems for the future. You don't want to leave stones within that liver. Uh, you don't want undrained bits uh, of the liver itself. So I don't care about if they're dilated or not. Okay. Uh, we still do a, the standard roux loop. Right. Um, what we believe happens, and what we've shown in, an, in two studies, in fact, uh, is that if you look at the diameter the measured diameter of the intrapatic ducts after the operation, it all comes down, yeah. it all reverts to normal. Now, as I say, the caveat may be that these, this is happening in children, so they've got the potential uh, for that. And if, if it's an established dilatation uh, in a 40-year-old or a 50-year-old, that may not be the case, I get that bit. Yeah. Uh, so we would, we would just watch and monitor them post-operatively, uh, and as I say, the bar ducts usually shrink down. Okay. So, I mean, you're doing a typical ruin wine estomosis to the, going to call it the common hepatic duct above yeah. the dilatation. Um, I've heard more and more stories of people going back to doing duodeno or duodenal anastomoses to the common hepatic duct. What are the risks in doing that? Okay, so that, uh, as we perhaps will explore later on, um, this stems from. Uh, the increasing popularity of laparoscopic resection of corridocal cyst malformations. Um, and the problem when you're doing a, a laparoscopic approach um, is you've got two anastomoses to do. And they solve the first, if you're doing a roux loop, the first anastomosis is typically done outside of the abdomen, it's extracorporeal. Yeah. But you've still got to do a, a difficult hepaticojejunostomy. You don't, you don't really know the spatial orientation of the ruler. Uh, it's in the way. Um, and therefore, it seems easier uh, to just mobilise the duodenum and bring the duodenum to the common hepatic duct. Mm -hmm. um, and it's therefore relatively straightforward. None of this, uh, uh, this complexity of the intestines getting in your way. So there have been a number of uh, uh, laparoscopic surgeons who have adopted that as the way to do it. The problem is that we've been through all this before. So Tadani, i mention his name again, Tadani, in addition to uh, describing the classification, um, also was a great advocate of hepatico duodenostomies as a reconstruction in open practice. Okay. Uh, quicker operation, easy to do. Open practice. The problem was, and uh, he, was, he was a great writer, uh, so he started describing his series uh, serially. So what emerged from it was a, a higher uh, reoperation rate, um, a higher um, reoperation rate for recurrent cholangitis, uh, for intrapatic stone formation. Yeah. Uh, when they started doing endoscopies after the operations, they found a higher incidence of bile gastritis. Didn't stop him doing it, but it was there. So 10-15% of them had bile gastritis. Right. Because the bile is delivered straight into the first part of the duodenum and it leaks backwards through the pylorus. Um, 
But what stopped them doing it uh, was that he'd, he'd done it, pedagogiodinostomy, in a, a child, I think she was a, a, an 18-month-old child, and she'd uh, come back 20 years later with carcinoma. Okay. And at the level of the anastomosis. Right. Um, and the team stopped. They said, that we, we can't risk this. If this is what's going to happen, we can't risk it. So they stopped and they reverted to doing rule loops. You think the carcinoma was from... It's a potential, it's a possibility. <clears throat> now, uh, it's, it's because of the recurrent... Whatever goes in your first part of the duodenum ends up in your bile duct, particularly if it's dilated. There's nothing to stop it. Yeah. There's no antiperistaltic loop or anything like that. So you've got food debris, undigested food debris. Uh, you've got acid. You've got um, pancreatic juices all getting into the dilated biliary system. Um, and whilst I've, I've done hepatocoduodenostomies for all the reasons... Uh, all of them, if you do a contrast study, shows immediate lighting up of the bile ducts. Um, so it, it's it's not theoretically, uh, it's it's not a, th- a long term solution to your problem. Whereas rule loops have got a, a much greater, longer, uh, safer record long term. Now the, the the issue is obviously that a lot of the guys who do these things laparoscopically never see their patients again. Uh, they're in places which don't have records of good long-term follow-up. So the big advocates uh, are in places like Vietnam, and uh, uh, you will never, they will never turn up. They come from the country, they come to the city, they have their operation, they go home again. So it's it's more for the comfort of the laparoscopic surgeon than any real desire to make a long-lasting procedure that suits the patient for the rest of the patient's life. Mm. So, I mean, the carcinoma risk is not actually from leaving a retained segment of cervical malformation. It's actually from the recurrent insults that they're getting yes. because of the anastomosis. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Hmm. Uh, I mean, speaking of the risk of carcinoma and those things, what's, yeah. your, what's your follow-up pattern for these patients? How do you follow these kids up? Okay, so we, we, um, we do follow them up. That's, that's the first thing to note, and I think that's probably important <coughs> you do so. So our uh, follow-up is, is a, a fairly standardised, routine, protocol-driven type of follow-up based on regular ultrasounds. Um, so we would perhaps see them maybe two to three times in the first post-operative year. Thereafter, we try and get them into a schedule of, of annual or biannual ultrasound. I think ultrasound is the key um, uh, investigation of choice for trying to prevent problems, trying to detect problems early. And the problems I'm talking about are largely within the liver. So if you look at the old Japanese series, uh, long-term follow-up, 20 years plus, the ones that caused the problems were the ones with residual intrahepatic dilated ducts, typically with stones, and they would continue to have cholangitis. So that's a relatively easy thing to diagnose with the ultrasound, so we reckon that if we were going to get those kind of kids, we should know about them early. Let's do ultrasounds. As it happens... Um, we haven't found this as, a, as an issue at all. We, we've not had that kind of long-term complicational problem. And now I attribute that to the increasing use of, of cholangioscopes, to uh, clearing uh, these ducts out, intrahepatic ducts, making sure they're draining, every, every segment is draining appropriately. So it's more prevention than it is cure. As regards for looking for cancer, uh, we know there is a cancer risk associated with cholangiocal malformations. Now, it's unclear 
as to what that means because there's many different uh, scenarios. So the most uh, commonly recognised scenario is actually in adult practice when these uh, patients present with a choroidal cyst at the age of 40 or 50 and about 20% of those will be found to be malignant at that time. Mm. Now, there's nothing you could have done about it because they present late for one reason or another. Um, the other group are those uh, where it's much more difficult to define an incidence of cancer, which is the ones you've already treated in childhood, uh, who present then secondarily. I mentioned Tadani's case. Mm. Uh, but you can, they can present uh, 20, 30, 40 years later, uh, either with um, a, a carcinoma at the level of the old anastomosis or in any kind of residual tissue within the head of the pancreas. So there's two sources of it. Um, again, uh, historically, total excision of a choridocal cyst was not actually the normal operation until the 1970s and 80s. So just simple drainage of the cyst into an internal root loop was the standard. Yeah. And that therefore left a whole big residual sump. And they turned carcinomatous, there's no question of that. But then, as I say, that's a historical operation nowadays. Mm -hmm. um, we, in our clinical series of uh, almost 300 uh, choridocal malformations, have not seen any of ours long-term come back with any kind of malignancy. Um, I did a, a, a histological study um, of uh, our resected specimens to try and identify ones perhaps with who might predispose to later onset uh, malignancy. So we looked at dysplasia. Um, we also looked at expression of biomarkers. CA199 is a biomarker. Yeah. Um, and we were looking at the actual expression of the, that antigen in the histology specimen, not as a serum, not as a, as a soluble thing. Okay. Um, and we found to our amazement and they had huge levels of this thing within the bile. And no, we had no actual literature to go on because people hadn't been looking actually within the bile itself yeah. for this particular marker, but sort of worried us, why, why are they liberating anything that which you'd seen uh, in adult practice you'd be really worried about? As it turned out, the CA99 is actually universally expressed in biliary tissue. Okay. So almost certainly it was simply coming from normal biliary tissue right. into bile and people just hadn't recognised that before. Mm -hmm. um, and that, that, So that, that biomarker seemed to be a dead end. Uh, we looked at, um, um, uh, what did you call it, proliferative index, uh, key, is it key 69? I'll say that. Key 69, uh, which is a proliferative index and you can look at that Again, as, as an index of how active the mitoses are within epithelium. And again, we looked back at histological specimens to try and identify those with higher uh, values for this, to see if, well, are these the ones that we need to look at specially? But again, there was a, a variation, there was a wide variation. But about 10% of the series did have very high uh, levels of this, this uh, epithelial instability index. And we tried to find a clinical correlate with it. Could not at all. We could, they, they were not young. They were not old. Mm. Uh, they did not have particularly inflammatory elements within the wall of the, the bile duct. 
Um, they didn't. They were not particularly the ones that had got obstructed or presented with pancreatitis, and they, they, it just seemed to be random almost. Um, so again, we were sort of stuck a little bit. So I've stuck with uh, our universal non-selective screening using ultrasound. Okay. But of course, at some point in adolescence, we've got to hand them over to someone else. Yeah. So we do that with the recommendation that they continue biannual screening with their ultrasounds and we'll, we'll see what happens. Okay. Mark, you've given us some indication of the fact that I think you probably would not do these laparoscopically. So my question is, is when's your unit going to buy a robot? <laughs> <laughs> wow, that, that cuts to the financial hub, that one. Uh, okay, so... Uh, I don't know how many robots are on the African continent. <laughs> I can't imagine there's a there's a lot of them. I have to say, there's one or two doing prostates. Okay, so that if you look at the evidence base for robots versus standard laparoscopy, the only thing that stands up is adult uh, prostatectomies. The only thing, everything else is sort of just window dressing. We've even less data from children's operations. Um, so if you if you if you, it clearly makes the one bit of the operation which is difficult, which is the anastomosis, simpler, you know, and it looks simpler on the video as well. You can see they're doing this almost as though it were an open, beautifully bespoke operation with everything in the right uh, the right plane, and you're putting it in the right place. None of this jerky laparoscopic movement. Mm. So it. it the, the advocates of it will say that it makes our anastomosis safer. Uh, but robots themselves cost a fortune. So the Da Vinci uh, is the standard still, uh, and it costs... Uh, you can substitute an actual price for it in the, in, the, uh, in the final recording for this one. I will say $6 million. You look on the website and you can't act. They don't quote any prices. Yeah. They don't quote any prices. But uh, it's, it's a fantastic figure. And the, the problem is compounded by the ongoing annual running cost of the thing. So they all use disposable instruments. And it costs a fortune to just keep it going. So there are two robots in paediatric practice in the UK. The first one was in Leeds, as had Naj Malden, uh, Navid Alizai, uh, managed to persuade people to buy a robot. And they were using it largely for things like pyeloplasties, yeah. where there's obviously a hand-sewn element to that. Uh, but they also started up a program using it on their colidocals. Um, and that's been in, uh, in action probably f since around 2007. So they may even have, are approaching 10 years of experience with it. And that's, that's how they do their colidocal malformations. Um, the, there's no other unit in the country that would do colidocals with a robot. The only other robot, as I say, in existence is in Chelsea Westminster Hospital. They bought it, again, with charity funds. But when the uh, trust management looked at how much they were expected to pay annually, they stopped them using it. So it's, it's, it's used occasionally. Uh, but largely it's a very expensive coat hanger that sits in a corner of the operating theatre in the Chelsea Hospital. Um, the problem fundamentally is that if you want the robots to work financially, you've got to use them day and night. Yeah. And you've got to treat them like an industrial uh, thing because the running costs are so high 
that you have to you have to get so much benefit from using it that it outweighs its costs. And the only reason you the only way you can do that is to do lots and lots and lots of them. Yeah. And that will never happen in pediatric. But it, you've 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 seen robots. You've you've sat at the console. Yeah. It is actually it's a, it's a, it's a weird sort of feeling, and and genuinely your your manual dexterity um, uh, is reproduced on the screen. So yeah. it, because of the the ways of the uh, the axes of the actual instruments, which is completely unlike that of a laparoscope. But have you seen there's these uh, what are they called now? They're developing three D laparoscopic instruments. That's the same thing, so that you'll be able to, and they will articulate. So, the guy called Jim Geiger, uh, I I work with him because we're we're publishing a book together. He has invented, with the University of Michigan, uh, he's invented that exact type of thing. So, it's an attachment to your arm. Yes, yeah. um, And you twist your arm, uh, and you've got the, uh, the, the, the index figures and the thumb. And it's it's got that dimensional element, that three dimensional element to it. Mm. Still costs something like eight hundred nine hundred dollars, oh, wow. and it's disposable. Thank you very much for uh, for indulging me. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Mark, for joining us. I, I appreciate you traveling all the way to Milan just to do these interviews with me. Absol- absolutely, <laughs> I would only do it for you, though, Andrew. You know that. <laughs> no, thank you very much, and uh, we appreciate your input and. We've all learned a lot, and we'll chat you soon. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on Discover Pediatric Surgery. Let your friends and colleagues know so we can all learn together. Catch you next week.